Great, so you heard him. <laughs> so you were, you were fairly warned in the description that it's a participatory session about games, and so very shortly you'll be made to play games. Um, and I think Jim actually gave sort of most of the, most of the key introductory ideas, um, which is that all around the world, um, people want to see richer teaching and learning happening in classrooms. Um, we had a system for many, many years um, in which it was totally suitable um, for people to be, be prepared with sort of the basics of literacy, um, you know, a tiny fraction of the population moving on into college. Um, and uh, there were lots of people um, who received, you know, sort of minimally suitable education who went on to live middle class, fully satisfying lives. Um, and, and just all over the world, from Massachusetts to Kuwait to all kinds of places, people want to see more richer, more challenging um, teaching and learning happening in classrooms. Um, teaching is just unbelievably hard and unbelievably complex. The, the, the richness, the intellectual challenge. I mean, the interesting thing about teaching, like, in some ways, all of us do it intuitively all the time. Like, you know, as parents, you teach, you know, your kid how to ride a bike, or you teach friends how to make a new recipe, or you share whatever. Um, you know, taking a group of, of 27 13-year-olds um, from all different kinds of backgrounds and trying to build their capacities from a wide variety of different starting points, um, dealing with all of the issues of, you know, whatever trauma and emotional challenges are happening in their lives, wildly different preparations for people ending up in your classroom. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, to me, it, it's just one of the sort of most remarkable intellectually rich things that we can study together. Um, and uh, the, you know, traditionally the way, you know, a really interesting thing about the teaching profession is that, you know, certainly across the U.S., but also in lots of other places in the world, um, the kinds of responsibilities that we give teachers on their very first day in their classroom. So, to, you know, today in many districts in Massachusetts is the second day of school. Um, and if you're a first-year teacher, and actually the, the modal number of years in which U.S. teachers have been teaching is one. Um, there are more, you know, the, the, the main, the, the largest group of teachers um, is in their first year of teaching. Um, they have the, basically the exact same responsibilities on their very first day of teaching that they will have 20 years from now in their career. Um, on your very first day of teaching, um, you might be given you know, 180 students and six preps, six different classes that you have to put together. Um, you know, and the expectation was is that, you know, in some cases with pretty minimal preparation, a couple of years in a normal school or a community college or something like that, you know, that would be suitable for you to prepare to teach. Um, but increasingly, systems realize that if we want students doing really amazing, challenging things in their K-12 classrooms, then like any other profession, um, we have to help adults throughout their whole lifespan become better at teaching and better at their craft. Um, and also increasingly, re we recognize that there's just an, you know, an almost infinite list of topics that we could explore to help teachers get better at their craft. Um, there's all kinds of things they can learn about child development, about instructional design, about cognitive science, um, about the sociological foundations of where their kids come from, all different kinds of things. Um, and so that's what sort of motivates and inspires my work is trying to think about, you know, how are we going to create better systems within societies, within school systems that create more opportunities for teachers to learn throughout their lifespan. Um, Another feature of um, a lot of classroom preparation um, is that historically it's been pretty theory-based. So it's been like, well, let's give people some background on cognitive science and then, you know, sort of like fundamental texts that they could read about cognitive science, and then let's toss them into classrooms and see if they can figure out how that applies to helping fourth graders divide fractions. Um, and there are lots of reasons to think that that hasn't necessarily been the most effective strategy that we could have devised. Um, so there's an increasing interest in practice 
and saying like, what is it exactly that we can show teachers how to do and how to do more effectively that would have them um, be better at their craft? Um, and so a lot of what we're motivated by um, in our lab is thinking about um, you know, practice really meaning two kinds of things. One is practice as rehearsal. Um, how do you get people to have more opportunities to try things? Um, but then also practice as a sort of set of codified practices um, that people have identified as sort of effective ways of getting folks to teach. Um, so let's play now one game um, that we invented actually here for the pre-service teachers who are in MIT's um, teacher education program. The game is called Committee of N. Um, it's a riff off a series of committees that were put together sort of after World War I and beyond. Um, one was called the Committee of Ten, which was chaired by Charles Eliot, the president of Harvard. Um, that like more or less kind of like they sat around, uh, you know, a bunch of white guys in the room and decided like what the high school curriculum would be. Um, and sort of thus it was uh, over the course of, uh, um, of the years fall. It's a lot more complicated than that, but that's the kind of story anyway. Um, so this is a game about envisioning futures for education. Um, so you'll find a partner or a group of three. Um, so you have to do this with someone else. And you all are design consultants. Um, so you're going to be asked to create something. Um, there'll be a series of black cards. And what are on the black cards will be elements of a school. So this one is a building design. Like what would a school look like? Um, another one, is, oh, that one was also building design. Um, assessment framework. How would you test over the course of years whether or not students were learning the things that they were supposed to be learning? Another one is the schedule. You have some amount of time during the day that's going to be divided up in some kind of way. What would be the structure that you would use for that? So we call those design elements. You'll give, be given sort of one part of a school. Um, and then you'll be given a series of values. Um, and so the values will be arbitrarily dealt to you. There are different categories of values. Um, so the orange cards are purposes of schooling. Um, over the last 150 years, we've had lots of different reasons um, that we've justified having public education systems to assimilate immigrants, to prepare people for their democratic responsibilities, to prepare them for vocational work, to prepare them for college, um, to help them develop as whole, fulfilled people. Um, I think the green cards are all teaching strategies. So we've tried things from direct instruction to apprenticeship to flipped classroom to competency-based learning. Um, the blue cards are sort of theories of intelligence from behaviorism to social constructivism to other kinds of things like that. And there's sort of other value cards that are dealt in there. Um, so I'm going to deal you um, one. I could, actually, you can uh, find your partner now um, and grab one of these sheets to work on. Can you guys sort of take one and pass around? Each group kind of needs one. Yeah. Yeah. Let's 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 pose. Um, it for sure is a retention issue. It is more the case than it has been in the past. So the modal year was not always one. Um, and that, but there are also questions about whether that's. Um, a sort of flaw in the design of education, or whether actually education should be like the military. Like, none of us are heartbroken that kids do a four-year tour of duty and then go do something else. Like, that seems like a perfectly reasonable thing in their profession. Um, yeah, Teach for America is a very tiny... I think people are more concerned with Teach for America as norm setting rather than actually introducing the distribution. It suggests that what elites should do is teach for a couple of years, and we might be better off if we convinced elites that they should make a career out of this. Um, some of it is we take people into the administrative ranks much earlier than we used to, um, and that, depending on what you think, is a good idea or a bad idea. 
Okay, cool. Have you found a partner? Good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Group up. This is great. This is great. All right, good. Um, what you're going to do is you're going to get these three cards. You're going to write them down. And then one of the great things about this game is whatever you do is exactly what you were supposed to do. However you play this is perfect. Like, you can't get it wrong. Um, in the middle of the page, kind of sketch out what you think this thing would look like, what features would it. If you're asked to design a classroom, like, write out what a classroom would look like. If you're asked to design a bell schedule, write out what a schedule of things would look like. If you're asked to design um, an assessment framework, you know, make some notes or schematics or draw it or bullet points or whatever else. Um, Typically, don't worry about like coming up with the best idea possible. Come up with like the first idea that seems workable and sort of develop it and make some sense of it. Um, but it has to be influenced by these three cards that you're going to be dealt in a second. It takes a little while for me to run around the room and deal the cards, but it's actually a sort of central part of the game to have the exciting moment of having the cards dealt. Um, and as people are coming in, like if folks in the back, if you can just adopt folks into your group and uh, work with them, that'll be great. And yeah. Are we supposed to collaborate? Yeah, yeah. Do it individually? No, no, no. In your in your group of three, like the three of you, sort of talk it out. You know, one person draw. Like one one sheet one sheet per group can be populated. Um, and then as you get towards being done, and I'll sort of yell at you after about ten minutes and be like, all right, it's kind of time to wrap this up. Um, you can start marking out what you think sort of some of the key features of your design are. What are the key things you're like, this is going to be awesome. Like when I go pitch this to the school committee, they'll be super happy. And if you really get good at this, you can give your solution kind of like a brand name and a logo. Like this is, you know, the like blank classroom design, you know, for, for whatever it is. And here's the logo of our company, which is going to sell these classrooms to, um, to things around the world. Does that make some sense? All right, while I'm going around and dealing out the cards, you can turn to your neighbors and introduce yourself if you don't know them and make sure you know all about them and their educational history. But I'll pretty quickly sort of make my way around. All right, cool. You guys are going to do a building design that's based on mastery, learning, and standards-based grading, on constructionism. Um, and your goal is to prepare people for elite colleges. That's what your school cares about. That's what they care about. You guys are going to build a, build a school that believes in constructionism, sort of Seymour Papert's idea that we learn by building things. You believe in problem-based learning, and your school really cares about character education. Like, what would be a building design that embodies those values? You guys are going to build an assessment framework, like how are kids sort of tested, passed. You really believe in sort of Seymour Papert's idea of constructionism. People build ideas by developing them. You believe the purpose of school is to prepare people to be citizens, and you use a lot of flipped classroom. You use a lot of sort of do stuff outside or do stuff inside. You guys are going to make a bell schedule. Your job is to prepare people to lead whole and fulfilling lives. Um, you believe in social constructivism, that people sort of construct their understanding and negotiation with others, and you care a lot about learners being central to their learning experience. So how would you allocate time over a week to sort of uh, evoke and live out those values? No, 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 you're going to be good at this. You're going to be good at this. Okay, awesome. You guys are going to build an assessment framework. Your school does hybrid and online learning. You prepare people for the trades. And you believe in Seymour Papert's idea of constructionism, that people develop things by making them. You guys are going to come up with a professional development. How do you train teachers in your school? You care a ton about assessment, about mastery learning and standards-based grading. So you care less that people get A's and B's and more that like, they know how to add fractions, then they know how to subtract fractions, then they know how to multiply them. Um, and you're working in a one-room schoolhouse, so there aren't that many faculty. So you're like in some super rural area where there aren't any other colleagues for your teacher to work with. 
Yeah, yeah, at least one. You guys are going to build the extracurricular offerings for a school. You care a ton about individualization, about assimilating immigrants who are moving into your neighborhood. And this idea of connectivism, which is that learning um, sort of is primarily formed through networks of people um, by connecting, like what learning actually is, is the theory of connectivism is learning is really building out nodes in a network. Like the more people, the more resources, the more neural connections you make, that's what learning is. Extracurricular is that school. You guys are going to make some extracurricular offerings for a school that believes in competency-based learning, training people for the trades, and behaviorism. So like, if you do things right, you get a cookie, and if you do things bad, you get an electric shock, and that kind of thing. So are we coming up with uh, some All right, you guys are going to build the testing framework for a school, sort of assessment or projects or whatever it is. You believe a ton in community. Um, you sort of try to have the teaching and learning aligned with the principles of uh, cognitive science, and you believe in sort of student inquiry, and having and students having some choice being able to explore things like how would you evaluate students in ways that align with those goals. You guys are going to build a technology infrastructure for a school that prepares people for elite colleges, believes in social constructivism, and believes a lot in individual learning. So what kind of like Devices would you buy, exactly. network yeah. structures, technologies, makerspaces, so whatever else. You guys have to make the graduate um, requirements for a school. This is what you need to get out. Like you believe in behaviorism, yeah, like so like, yeah, you know, you do things right, you get a cookie, you do things poorly, you get a shot. You believe strongly in community, and you're preparing people to be citizens in a society. Um, so how do those, what would be, the, what would be like the right, if you could say like, imagine like the student handbook, here's a list of what you need to graduate from here. All right, who's here, two or three or? Graduate requirements for a school that believes in project-based learning, tries to align with cognitive science, and believes that actually like it's pretty important that people have deep content knowledge in different areas. Um, what would be the good sort of graduate requirements? You all are going to build a classroom, and obviously like, there'll be lots of them. But um, you believe that students are blank slates um, who slowly over time sort of imprinted their ideas upon them. You believe on independent study, and the purpose of your school is to have people become sort of whole, fulfilled, um, reflective, ethical human beings. Uh, you all are going to build the extracurricular offerings, you three, for a school that believes in community, that cares a lot about preparing people for colleges, and like test scores and achievement. You guys are going to build the technology infrastructure for a school. That yeah. Seymour Packard's constructionism, whole purpose education, and you have a whole bunch of immigrants that you're trying to assimilate into your community. All right, just leave. You want to do it on your own? You want to do it with these folks here? All right, awesome. You're going to build a classroom building. Can we have one of those extra sheets? There's a situated learning, um, which is sort of like a model of apprenticeship. Like, if you're, if you're in a community of people who are doing things, you'll learn from being part of that community. Um, you care a lot about learners having autonomy and agency, and then you want your school to be competency-based, so you're less concerned, like, whether people got an 89 or a 91 on a test, and more concerned, like, did they show mastery of X? Did they show, you know, can they add fractions, yes or no? Can they subtract fractions, yes or no? That kind of thing. Uh, you three are going to make a bell schedule for a school. You have the least amount of time because you're in the back, so you have to cram. And you're preparing people for elite colleges. It's really important that they can pass all those good experiences. You care a ton about the content that they learn. You want to have a rich content experience. But you also want to use problem-based learning so people are doing authentic challenges and things like that. So what would be a schedule that would allow all those goals to occur? Maybe they should be public projects or something like that.
So now we have values. So hands-on building, making is a, a way of learning. That's constructionism. It could be a public, so they could be asked to go out in the public and find a project that would require some kind of uh, team effort to build. It could be a victory, it could be a garden, it could be a public space, it could be a place where people could uh, you know, give books to each other, drop off, pick up. Uh, it could be some kind of counting thing where you know, they would go out to the community and count. Uh, I don't know, people who uh, would like to have some uh, transportation system. And the complication of this that could maybe be made a value is that we would have to work with people at different levels. Yeah, they would have to work with people across the community, all the way from kids up to senior citizens. So, they would work for different ages and levels of And an assessment framework could be self-assessment. So, you know, these are kind of uh, projects that people are engaged in making for with with other people. So part of the part of the value is kind of be be extend into the community. Yeah. Be something. So that could be a classroom. That would be a very reasonable classroom to have in a junior high school or high school. Yeah. So, you know, we're gonna we're gonna work in the community. And the assessment would be self-assessment. You know, uh, some way of uh, explaining how how well the project works. Okay, quick pause, quick pause, quick pause. You're gonna, whatever you've done so far is perfect. You've done exactly the right work so far. It's excellent. You got, I'm gonna give you three more minutes. Your goal is to get as close to, like we're not going for quality here, we're going for completion. So you wanna flesh out this idea as much as possible. If you've just like put a few scarce notes on your page, now is the time to like write down and draw everything that you've thought of so far. Um, so be as sort of complete and whole as possible in the next three minutes, because whatever you're doing is of like exactly the quality that it's supposed to be right now. Does that make sense? Three more minutes, ready, go. I don't have to say what's the design element.
nursing community, we could call it a project community, but that extends from the school into the into the into the, the community itself. Schools are part of communities, but sometimes they kind of are, uh, they exist in their own world outside of the community or alongside. So this would be an effort to bring students into the community. So the design element would be uh, community participation, community participation, Obviously, I'll be reading this aloud. We have to because we can read. I have no um, idea where they're. So I like. I mean, I take one more minute to wrap up. One more minute. And that would be the. Uh, so this is, uh, and this is a way of uh, becoming uh, vocational. Is, is a way of Okay, come on back. Come on back. All right. Stop working. Stop learning. Stop participating. Participation's over now. Um, is there a group? that had three cards that you felt like really fit nicely together. Like three things that were sort of aligned with one another, made some sense together, were coherent. Can you guys in the back talk a little bit about what, what your cards were and what you built? Sure. Uh, so uh, we had constructionism, Seymour Patrick. We had the whole person education. And we had assimilation. Uh, so to us, this became, and then technology so to us, this became an initiative uh, very similar to the board from Star Trek. Ah, nice. Yeah, good. So uh, basically, we are doing whole person education by replacing parts of ourselves with technology. <laughs> We're assimilating. That needs no explanation. But the, the point is, this is not a board that comes and visits us and assimilates us. It's, uh, it's us doing this on our own. This is a way of, of uh, assimilating with each other. Everybody is a visitor or uh, an alien uh, in our trip to the future. And um, it's constructionistic because, or constructivism, because we are creating this together. That is the learning process creating the technological infrastructure that we are becoming part of. It's fabulous. Board. Really good. So, And your website is like friendlyborg.org or something like that? That's, <laughs> that's really good. Instead of the, the old slogan, we are the board, we're using, let's be the board. <laughs> <laughs>
Perfect. On this, on the scale of like kind of directly influencing the kinds of things that happen in schools and teaching and learning, and totally out there, like you very successfully went towards the totally out there side of the spectrum. You, you three had, you were you saying you had some cards that fit together nicely too? You two right there. You want to give us just a little? Uh, so we were creating an assessment framework mm -hmm. with inquiry, learning, community-centered, and cognitive science. Nice. Good. Yep. Great, perfect, terrific. Was there, was there any group that had three cards that you said, oh my gosh, like what do these have to do with it? Like these can't fit together, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're a blank slate, like how do you go off by yourself exactly. and discover that doesn't make any sense? Good. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> um, but we, we worked it out. We nice, thought, good. Uh, we were supposed to be designing a classroom in which this would occur. Uh -huh. um, and so we started with the idea that there needs to be a curriculum. In other words, right, Tavila Rasa suggests that the, the teacher needs to impose a curriculum. Yeah, to write on the blank slates. Um, but intent study requires that it not be a lecture format. Um, and the quest for individuality means that it has to become modularized and students need to be able to move through it at different paces and orders. So we created a round room with the teacher in the center, mostly just to answer questions, mm -hmm. with all the curriculum materials already preset, um, like perhaps library books all around the walls, and then individual um, sort of experiments stations and games and um, videos that students could watch, etc. Um, that they would be, you know, always doing mostly on their own and just having the teacher there to answer questions. Great, great. So you built this kind of donut of yeah. uh, like donuts with little like pockets for each individual student. It's actually a little bit like I don't know if you saw the. Star Trek movie where you see the Vulcan school that Spock grows up in where they all have these little buckets that they stand in independently and uh, are surrounded by learning. And actually the, actually the Vulcans would probably agree with tabula rasa. That seems aligned with uh, what they're thinking. Cool. Um, so the, if you were to play further rounds of this game, um, we would deal you more sets of cards and you would make more of them so that you had a little stack of them. So you built um, uh, three or five or six or seven of them. Um, and you would have this experience repeatedly of finding some that aligned really nicely together and were sort of obvious and some that are like, oh man, this doesn't make sense at all. But you'd work through it sometimes or, or you'd work through it in something that's completely ridiculous. Um, eventually then we would put you into larger groups and we'd have you sort of negotiate schools out of your different elements. So you might build seven elements and then we'd reduce you down to three, and each of you would, you know, each pairs or threesomes would get together in groups of 12, and you'd come up with a school, and then you'd have to pitch that whole school with these different parts of it together to a school committee um, and, to, and to see whether or not it makes sense. Um, the origin of the game are kind of funny. So um, I've taught these classes here, uh, Introduction to Education, 11124 and 11125. The fall class does education history and policy um, and instructional strategies, and the spring class does uh, sort of curriculum and assessment. Um, and at the end of the spring class, there was a young woman who raised her hand. We were doing a debrief at the very last day, like how's the year gone, how these classes gone, and one girl raised her hand and said, 
oh man, I am so glad that the spring class came after the fall class because at the end of the education history and policy unit, I was totally depressed. Um, and then like seven other kids in a class of 25 were like, yes, absolutely, that part of the class was so depressing. Like, I'm glad we did things afterwards. And I thought like, that is not an unreasonable sort of position to take after studying education history and policy in America for a few months, but it's probably not a desirable outcome for, for us to have. Um, so how could we create a learning experience for young people where they, encounter education, history, and policy with all of its, all of its various challenges, but engage it in a more optimistic way. Um, and so design is a great way of tackling difficult challenges um, that, that brings an optimistic perspective to what we're doing. Um, the cards are actually aligned. Um, some of them are actually very directly out of books that we read for class. So all of the orange cards are from a book called Schooling America by Patricia Graham. Um, so before you play the game, you'd actually read Schooling America, and you'd have much more familiarity than you all had with these things. Um, the red cards are from a book by John Bransford called How People Learn. Um, for some of the other ones, we give the students the cards in advance, and they can do like a little bit of research or Googling, or we give them some packets or some other kinds of things. But they, but they know they have to play the game, and having the cards in the game sort of motivates their activity. Um, the, the core sort of heuristic out of the game, kind of the main thing that I think students take away from it, um, is if you're you know, a 19-year-old sophomore at MIT, and you're, we send our students to go do classroom observations, to go into you know, Cambridge Ridge and Latin, or a community charter school at Cambridge, and watch what's happening there, and then eventually assist and help in those kinds of things. Um, school looks sort of fixed and deterministic to you. It looks like that school has been the way school is forever, because like that is just the natural order of things. And how could there be another way that school is? Um, but, I, but, but part of what we try to teach students through this game um, is that everything you see in a school was designed. Um, and it was designed by people who had values. And those values are imposed on the designs that you see. Every routine that you see, every piece of furniture, every wall in the building, um, everything was built with a set of designs that people had for what good teaching and learning and what good schools were supposed to look like. And if we today don't share those same values, then we can design different things. Um, not all of these design elements are equally easy to change. Um, your extracurricular activities, you could scrap them and put them together next year. Um, in the state of Massachusetts, your school building is gonna come around every 50 or 75 years. Um, so you have differential capacity to change these things. Um, one of the challenges that schools faced is that they have essentially been dealt an accretion of these cards over years. Um, it's not that we no longer expect schools to assimilate immigrants. We don't feel as strongly as we do about it in the 1930s, but we still feel strongly about it. Um, but we also ask them to prepare students to do well in achievement tests and to prepare people to be bulwark of democracy and to get into college and get increasing proportions of them to college and all these kinds of things. Um, there are some schools which are, and so if you go into a school building and you see people playing cards that like are contrary to one another or don't make sense with each other, or you see this all the time where schools say, we're gonna get totally into problem-based learning, like you know, inquiry, this is gonna be our thing. Um, and somehow we're gonna make that work in seven 37 minute periods a day. And he's like, oh, like you know, your schedule doesn't have a problem-based learning card behind it. Um, and that's why you're finding it so difficult to align with your curriculum. Um, 
One of the huge advantages that new schools have, um, recently created charter schools, Greensfield schools of various <coughs> kinds, um, is that they can choose a much smaller number of cards to play with. Um, they can hire only people who believe really passionately in the values of those cards, um, and they can keep things much more sort of coherent and tightly arranged. So the people that we send out to observe um, the Community Charter School of Cambridge find that it, you know, it sort of has fewer values in play and that are being arranged um, as a relatively recently created school with a pro pretty coherent framework um, than Cambridge Ringe and Latin, um, which the city of Cambridge has asked to do all kinds of things for many, many different kinds of students for many, many years. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the assignments that follows up um, with the game is uh, um, to ask students to write a letter to their future selves about the school that they would like to work in. Um, it turns out that for new teachers, one of the most consequential decisions that they'll make um, is who their first principal will be. Um, the person that you're willing to work for in your first job has enormous influence um, over the constraints of what you can and cannot do as a first year teacher and the kinds of support that you'll be able to get. Um, and, and there are lots of good principles that are out there, and there are also lots of good, really different principles that are out there. there there's lots of different ways to be a good school, um, and this sort of evaluates that. So one of the fun things for us about this game um, is that we find you know, months later, kids in class or in their final essays will just use this heuristic of the values that are underneath things, the cards that I saw in play. Um, we did this uh, exercise with a bunch of school leaders um, in a professional development where we basically did something like what you did, maybe, maybe two or three rounds of it. Um, and one of the most memorable pieces of feedback was a school principal was like, oh, you know, we were playing a bunch of cards and you know, I would play something like, ah, I'm not that interested in this, ah, I'm not that interested in that. And play others like, oh, I'm really excited about this, I'm really excited about this. And then I realized, like in my day-to-day -day job, I always have to play the cards that I'm not that excited about and I never get a chance to play the ones that I'm really fired up about. Um, and that was a powerful insight to her about how she was being constrained and how she could, uh, she could evaluate her time. Um, for those of you who are game design nerds, like you have basically played a version of the tarot. Um, this is sort of like tarot for school design. Um, so uh, you know, what tarot cards do is they give you a series of constraints around storytelling, um, and then you tell a series of stories about the future that make you reflect on what kind of futures you would like to have and what kind of futures you would less like to have. So you didn't play with like death and um, some of those other kinds of things, but you played like roughly the same. You know, if, if there's a game that has a mechanic that's most similar, um, it's probably that one. Um, I'll give you some more sort of whole context of how this fits in a larger research program, but are there other questions that people have or reactions or thoughts or? that schools are sort of super interested in right now is personalized learning. Um, and one of the interesting things about personalized learning is that people from all across the political spectrum think personalized learning is a great idea. Um, and when people who disagree about everything agree that personalization is good, like you know that they can't actually mean the same thing by the word personalization. <laughs> um, 
So some people, you know, some versions of personalization are we are going to fix the content. We're going to know for sure what we want to teach, and we're going to use computers and algorithms and other kinds of things to sort of optimize a person's pathway through that material. And other people, when they talk about personalization, mean we're going to give students more choices about what they care about, and we're going to sort of organize the curriculum around that. Like, you know, so you can have educators who are both talking about wanting to personalize kids' <coughs> learning experiences, whose values are not only different, they are incompatible with one another. Like, if you want to algorithmically optimize people's uh, pathway through content, you can't let them choose the curriculum. Like those, those things just don't fit with one another. Um, and all the time in schools, you know, examples of that come around where there's a range of competing values, which are not just like, well, this pulls a little bit of my time this way, and put, like you actually you can't do both of those things at the same time. Well, other reactions that people had or questions about the game or. Good. <laughs> play, play more. Um, but the, when we when we build games in our lab, and I'll tell you more about our lab. There's usually sort of four components that we're trying to create, which is one is some sort of platform or experience. Um, a second is some sort of authoring tool. Um, the authoring tool for this one is pretty straightforward. It's like you uh, you can buy these decks off of Game Crafter, but there's also a series of PowerPoint files that you can like. Um, we're working with some other um, teachers of education, professors of education to play versions of this game, and they might make a new color um, that's based on some other book that we're not reading that they are, that they come up with another six or seven cards that are that are related to that. Um, so, so some game or platform, some authoring tool uh, that's open source, some authoring tool so that people can change and edit what they're doing. Um, some kind of curriculum around it. So if you went to our website, um, tsl.mit.edu, and looked up Committee of N, like there's our whole three-day curriculum, all the PowerPoint slides that we used to introduce it, a bunch of guidelines around it and things like that. Um, and then we publish stuff about our work so that we surface sort of design principles and other kinds of things so that if you wanted to make something like Committee of N but different, um, then you would uh, know what our thinking was. Um, and in various cases, we're trying to um, come up with sort of evidence of efficacy, like do we, you know, what kind of evidence can we come up with um, that when, that when pre-service teachers use these learning experiences as part of what they're doing, they're actually better teachers because of it. Um, the easy things, and I'll get into this more, for us to measure are things like how does the game change their behavior within their sort of uh, teacher learning program. Um, we're, we have a partnership with uh, West Virginia University and was talking to a faculty member there who's going to use this game in her curriculum. And she has this really cool assignment where on the first day of class, she's done this for <coughs> years, um, she has students draw a picture of a really powerful classroom and describe what's happening in that classroom. And then she gives the students the exact same assignment 18 weeks later um, in the last day of class. And of course, the pictures are totally different from one another. And the rationales of what good teaching can look like um, are really different for, from one another. So one of our questions will be, when we get all those artifacts from the last week of class, um, will these heuristics appear in some kind of way um, in their writing or thinking about education? If it, they are, that gives us a little bit more evidence than what we're doing is sort of durable experiences of learning. You know, ultimately, for the things that we're doing, we, we want to find out that teachers who are prepared this way are, in fact, better prepared to be teachers and are happier or retain more, do better with their job, those kinds of things. Um, oh, and I've lost my... I've lost my screen, but you haven't lost me, so... Um, um, 
that's everything about that. Cool. So I run a lab at MIT. It's called the Teaching Systems Lab. Um, we investigate the complex, technology-rich classrooms of the future and the systems that we need to help educators thrive in those settings. Um, we're based in NE49 in the Office of Digital Learning. Um, we're a super interdisciplinary group, which is really fun. So we have software developers and game designers and instructional designers and cognitive scientists and learning scientists and science educators and people who do all different kinds of things. Um, a really cool thing about doing um, work in K-12 education at MIT right now is there's just a ton of people who have looked at the kinds of education that MIT has created for its students on campus and thought there are elements of that that we would love to see you know, modified and impl implemented in lots of different ways. So there's, there's tons of different philanthropies and foundations and individuals and organizations who are, who are giving a lot of support to the work that we're doing, which, is, which makes it a really fun time to work here. Just br broadly, we do three kinds of things. Um, so one of the things that we do is we look at the intersections between online learning and teacher education. So like in the last year, we've created these two online courses called Launching Innovation in Schools and Design Thinking for Leading and Learning. Um, most of the sort of MOOCs that originally appeared were around technical subjects, and so these are around preparing professionals. Um, it raises a really interesting series of questions like most of what we want our school leaders to be able to do are deploy competencies that happen in real time, that are collaborative and are in particular settings but we're teaching them asynchronously online, like in their pajamas at 11 p.m. at night by themselves. Um, so trying to figure out how you learn in one context, but transfer that learning into other contexts is a kind of research challenge that we tackle there. Um, we think MIT is a really cool place to sort of, you know, the future is already here, but it's unevenly distributed, but MIT is a kind of place you see that first. Um, at MIT, if you spend a bunch of time here, it becomes obvious that the field of biology has completely transformed in the last 10 years. That the sort of observational Linnaean biology um, that you and I encountered in high school is like rapidly being replaced by this computational engineering quantitative science. Um, and uh, somebody out there should build a curriculum um, for middle school students and high school students that prepares people for what biology is today. If you, if you built that curriculum, it would be impossible to use in schools. There would be all kinds of regulatory and assessment reasons why people would say, no, 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 we're supposed to do this other, this other thing we've defined as biology and you have to do that. Um, but we're interested in some of those kinds of intersections where you could say, how could we create something new? Um, and then what I'll mostly talk about today um, is we think one of the signature challenges in teacher learning um, is that most teachers spend you know, some number of years in rooms like this with someone lecturing to them about theory and pedagogy. That's, so they, that's one, sort of graduate school of education seminar rooms. And then they go out into their actual classrooms with, you know, there's 27 students who like actually have to learn how to factor polynomials that day. And that's, you know, it's a little bit like going to football players and being like, well, you can either watch game film or you can try that next week against the Patriots. Um, and most football players would be like, that is a terrible idea. We need a practice field. We need some kind of space where we can do deliberate, repeated practice, where we can fail, where we can abstract away complexity and then layer that complexity back on over time. And most professions find some way of doing that through apprenticeships or through low stakes um, kind of introductions to things. But teaching doesn't really have the same piece. Um, so, so we're really, you know, and, and this is something that's sort of widely recognized that we're building on um, across the field. So Pam Grossman, who's the dean of the Graduate School of Education at UPenn, um, will talk about how, you know, even across the helping professions, even when you compare teaching to how clergy are trained or how social workers are trained or, or other kinds of comparable groups, um, <coughs> teachers just have fewer opportunities to practice specific things that they might implement over their careers. Um, so we think this is sort of an exciting place for us to be exploring and playing within, both because it's widely needed um, and because it sort of expands our theoretical horizons and because it turns out it's pretty fun to do, too. Um, 
So simulation is already widely used in one form or another in teacher education. So here are sort of three examples of that. Um, uh, one is, is that it's pretty common um, in different kinds of teacher programs to use some form of role play. Um, so if the six of us are in some kind of like teacher learning cohort, then we'll periodically go and one of us will be like, well, why don't you teach a lesson on fractions and we'll do a 10 minute lesson together and you five might be like assigned cards that tell you what kind of students you are and what kinds of characteristics you have. Um, and then you practice, uh, practice implementing that. Um, in some places, the way that the, those role plays are meant to be sort of expansive, sort of sparks for discussions about what good teaching and learning could like, it could look like. In other schools, there are actually pretty clear ideas about what good practice is, and there are beliefs that there are sort of right ways and wrong ways about doing things. So, you know, so typically speaking, the sort of schools that organize themselves under the banner of no excuses charter schools are much more likely to believe that there is a correct range of teaching practices. And one of the best things that we can do for young teachers is not like have them discover how to implement, you know, how to translate, you know, ideas from cognitive science into actual practice, but just be like, no, there's better and worse ways of doing things, and we'll show you what the better ones are and make you stop doing the worse ones. Um, there are a couple of teacher educators around the country who are interested in borrowing ideas from medical education. Um, so uh, pretty common in the training of doctors and nurses to have trained actors. Um, who get put in special rooms in the medical schools where there are cameras set up and other things like that. Um, and in some places, actually, like people will take their students from the education school and walk them over to the medical school and use those same rooms, sometimes use those same actors, except instead of you know, having them be people that have you know, a, a, a heart disease, you have them be parents who are super upset about something that their, uh, that their teacher has said in class or things like that. And having them uh, role play those scenarios with trained actors, um, record those scenarios, those kinds of things. Um, they're really, really powerful learning experiences. They're also super expensive and time consuming. Um, so if you're paying an actor X many you know, dollars an hour to be able to do some kind of scenario and you've got to run you know, 100 students in a program through that scenario, um, then the time and logistical costs can go up. There are also folks who are interested in like trying to create sort of whole technology simulations of classrooms. So that's a screenshot from a program called Mersion, which actually is kind of a hybrid of these things. So there's an actor um, who like sits in a warehouse in Santa Barbara or something like that, who's trained to control those five kids um, and has like an Xbox controller that can like make the kids become happy or sad or throw things at you that has voice modulation so when he or she talks like it sounds different when it comes out of each of the five kids heads and you would stand in front of a television monitor with like a connect that's attached to it so it can sort of detect where you are and things like that and try to basically simulate that experience it's basically digital puppetry kind of um, so there's so there's a lot of stuff that's that's already out there um, we draw a bunch of our inspiration for the kinds of, um, we, we, we don't say, what, one of the things that these three things have in common is a lot of them are trying to create the whole situation of teaching and sort of replicate it as a full simulation, which we think is a totally reasonable thing to do. Um, we also think there's probably many, many more ways of getting people to practice. Um, another way you could describe that is like, to borrow another athletic metaphor, like most of these organizations are trying to create scrimmages and we think it actually might be useful to explore genres of drills. 
Um, so drills are typically not things that you would actually do in athletic endeavor, but there's some kind of transfer of skills that you learn that becomes relevant and the constraints of the drill help you develop those specific practices. So like you never actually play keep away on a soccer field, but playing keep away for a while helps you develop some skills in positioning and passing and things like that that are translatable to playing soccer. Um, so a lot of the stuff that we're interested in with drills, and we draw a lot of inspiration um, from games because we see things that gamers are doing being pretty closely aligned to what teachers end up doing in their classroom. So there's a famous game developer named Sid Meier who made all these games along the top, like the Civilization series and Pirates and things like that. There's this great line that he says, games are a series of interesting decisions. Um, part of why you're having fun in games is because you're making decisions. Um, and there are three characteristics of those decisions which are particularly prominent. Um, one is that those decisions involve trade-offs. Um, if you pick up your rook and move it somewhere, then you didn't get to move your bishop that turn, and that kind of hurts. Um, it's exciting that you got to move your rook, but it kind of hurts that you couldn't move one of those other pieces. Um, so you're making some kind of trade-off or choice in what you're doing. Um, oftentimes, your decisions in game spaces um, reflect some kind of identity that you either have in a durable way or adopting for a period of time. Um, I can be an aggressive chess player or a defensive chess player. In role-playing games, you actually, you know, I am the crafty wizard um, or I'm the aggressive ogre or whatever else, but there's some kind of sort of personality that you're adopting. Um, and decisions in game spaces have real consequences for other people. Like when your rook takes someone else's pawn, um, part of why that's exciting is there's someone who lost their pawn, and that feels good. Um, teachers face a number of these analogies. So teaching basically has two parts. One is this sort of like um, ideally kind of long, careful, meticulous planning. Um, and then it is just this incredible cascade of decision making. Um, when a teacher is dropped into a classroom, you know, they usually have sort of three mental tracks that are playing at once. There's usually some type of content that's meant to be disseminated that they need to pay attention to. There's the relationship and reactions of the people in the room that they have to be attentive to. And then there's sort of the time and the space and the plan that's going on that they have to be attentive to. Like how many minutes did we go through and things like that. Teachers are constantly processing and making a zillion decisions, you know, over and over again. A student asks a question and like, is that a viable question? Is answering that question gonna enrich our conversation? Would it be so good for that student that even though it's kind of a waste of time for the rest of students, I should answer it? Should I answer it in five seconds? Should I tell the person to see me after class? Should I say, actually, this is a moment for a great tangent to explore, you know, every second. Teachers are making these kinds of decisions. Um, our students here in the pre-service program at MIT, they, they tend to think of teaching as explaining things clearly. Like that's the sort of model that they have in their mind. Um, and then when they go back into classrooms and look at them really closely and see what's happening, they just see this sort of rich tapestry of decisions. And within those decisions, teachers are always faced with trade-offs. Um, and most of those trade-offs relate to time. You know, if you have a 47-minute period with 27 kids in there, you're constantly faced with choices about how you want to allocate time and attention across those students. Um, uh, teaching is an incredibly personal art. Um, the, the, the way that people teach is deeply implicated in their identity. Um, uh, you know, I was a social studies teacher and one of the sort of core identity questions that social studies teachers wrestle with um, is how much of my political identity am I going to bring into a classroom? Am I going to be a social studies teacher where sort of you know where I come from and you know where I stand and you hear that? Or am I going to be a social studies teacher um, where I present multiple sides and multiple perspectives and it's really your job to decide among them? For me as a social studies teacher, I was in the latter camp and that 
that was really important to me. When we were studying Israel and Palestine and a student writes, you know, on the on an evaluation at some point, actually I have no idea what Mr. Reich thinks about this. Like to me, that is just an incredibly rewarding piece of feedback. But there are other great teachers who you might write, like, you know, Mr. Reich's a Democrat, and you know exactly where he stands on things, but he's always free to let me sort of express my opinion. Um, and then the actions and decisions that we make in teachers just have profound implications in other people's lives. So there's this nice parallel between the kinds of decisions that make games enriching, um, you know, uh, thought-provoking, challenging spaces, um, and the kinds of things that teachers are, are doing. Hey, Justin, quick question. Yeah. Have you seen any um, tie-ins to the world of master musicians? Just like the, game, the world of gamers has been very integral. Um, has there been any work looking at um, what makes a master musician and how some of those experiences can be... Yep, so there's a guy named Anders Ericsson, um, who is a cognitive psychologist who studies expertise. Um, he is best known, much to his chagrin, um, as being the source material for, what's that fellow's name? Uh, yeah, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 Hours. So Ma Malcolm Gladwell's claim about 10,000 Hours is kind of a perversion of Anders Ericsson's work. Um, uh, and it's actually relevant to some of this. So what, what he says is, is that actually like the number of hours of practice is totally the wrong measure, although things can take a lot of time. Um, when people develop expertise, and musicians are a great example of this, they need to be able to do some performance. They need to be able to compare their performance to expert performance. They need to be able to notice the difference between where they're at and where the expert performance is. And then they need to be able to have specific feedback about how they can make progress from where, wherever they're at to the next step. Um, one of the things that makes the training of musicians more straightforward is that you know, like we can come to consensus about what really beautiful music looks like and sounds like, at least within sub-communities, and then train people to progress towards that. Um, one of the challenge we can talk more about this as we go, and one of the challenges that we have in teacher education um, is that there's not that often same level of consensus about what good performance looks like, particularly good performance vis-a-vis -a, -vis a particular kid in a particular situation in a particular moment. Um, so one of you know, Anders Ericsson has been doing a bunch of work with teacher educators recently, um, asking like. Well, well, what are going to be exemplars of excellent performance that we can use? How can we have people do demonstrations of their own performance? And then how can we sort of compare that gap and iterate towards that? Um, practice spaces might be one place where we can have people do mediocre performance in places that don't harm children. Um, we think that some of the people who adopt our practice spaces are going to be ones who believe really strongly that there are kind of right answers and that we can iterate towards those right answers. There might be other folks, and this would sort of destabilize Erickson's view, you know, where, where the craft of teaching is like simply too situational. Like what's beautiful music in one moment is actually not beautiful music for another kid in another moment. Um, so yeah, musicians I think are another great analogy. Um, and, uh, and there's some specific ideas about what good practice looks like um, that we can think about in the development of our practice spaces. Cool, continue to interrupt. I have this old joke that uh, when I, I, I did my doctoral work at Harvard, and whenever I gave a talk at Harvard, people would like very politely, you know, wait for 45 minutes until the thing was over and then ask questions. And then when I gave my first talk at MIT, I got a question on the title slide. Um, <laughs> and so, and I appreciate the question on the title slide. Um, you know, we think one of the ways that we can explore this space is by trying to make a bunch of these games in a bunch of different genres that approach a bunch of different areas. Um, and so we, you know, Meta Rubric is a game about building assessments. Balder Math is a game about, it's a bluff the judge game about looking at student work in mathematics. 
Eliciting learner knowledge is a game about trying to understand student misconceptions. Um, motivation Station is a game about trying to understand and apply um, uh, uh, principles of motivation derived from cognitive science. Teacher Moments is probably the game that we have which is most simulation-like, where we immerse people into short vignettes of uh, challenging moments in teaching circumstances and we make them respond. So part of our effort is to have a range of these different things. Um, and, I, and I would say, ex, you know, to some extent explicitly, at least in my own head, I don't think for anyone in the lab, but one of the sort of like, you know, any time you hear someone describing an argument, a useful question is like, what are they arguing against? Um, and there's a little bit of a sort of argument against that like, you know, the, the way that we would prepare teachers is that there's a bunch of knowledge they're supposed to have and if we just pour that knowledge into their head um, and assess it using some kind of conventional means, um, they'll be able to represent it. That we, that we think part, you know, part of the challenge of really enriching, particularly online education, is trying to find a wider variety of um, instructional designs and assessment techniques that we could develop. Um, so the game that you played was a card game and we often develop things using cards and pencils and paper um, because printing paper is a lot cheaper than writing code um, and, uh, and it's easy to rip up and those kinds of things. But, but you know, there's probably some moment in the life of Committee of N where we'll try to play around with other ways of making it more digitally mediated in part because actually the field of teacher education is increasingly becoming online and blended. Um, for a couple of different reasons. Teacher salaries are so low in many parts of the country um, that keeping the costs of teacher education down is a real prerogative, because if it costs you, you know, $80,000 to get a master's degree, um, and in Oklahoma you get paid $34,000 a year when you start teaching, you know, it's gonna take you years and years and years to pay that back. I was just in Oklahoma, in the last 10 years our education budget has been cut by 28% or something like that, you know, state, state funding for it, kind of unbelievable. Um, but the other reason is, is that if we actually want to serve teachers throughout their lifetime, um, then having more online and blended ways of engaging learners throughout their career at different moments in their summers, on their weekends, in the afternoons, in their prep periods, um, online gives us sort of more different ways to engage people. Um, we use, in developing these different things, we use design-based research. Um, and uh, we probably haven't codified exactly what that is, but. Um, Here's, here's one sort of linear trajectory of what it looks like, although in fact like it's a series of sort of iterative loops. Um, a lot of our work typically starts with construct mapping. Um, so one of the questions we often start with is, if a teacher was doing this really well, what would that look like? Um, so when we build a game about looking at student work, we start by talking for a long time about, or, and, do, and looking at the literature and all those kinds of things about like, when a teacher is doing this practice really well, um, what does that look like? Is there consensus over what that practice looks like? So actually in the field of looking at student work in mathematics, there's like a pretty narrow consensus about what good practice looks like. There's some things we know that are not useful for teachers to do that they actually often do and some things that we know that are useful for teachers to do. In other fields, um, especially stuff related to culturally competent teaching or unconscious bias or other things, things are super situated and so we end up describing a range of effective practice rather than one thing. Um, but we try to build stuff really, really quickly. Um, certainly every week, and sometimes close to every day in our lab, there's some kind of internal play test that goes on. Um, and uh, we have, you know, people will send a message on the Slack channel that from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. we're trying the next version of blank. Come down and play it with us. So we play games a lot sort of within ourselves. Um, 
But uh, we also try very much to get practicing educators and teacher educators involved in our design as early as often as possible. Um, so every two months, our lab hosts a play test. Um, I'll put a note on this on the board before I'm done. But the next one is on Tuesday, coincidentally. You're all invited to come by. Um, so we'll have a combination of teachers and pre-service teachers and teacher educators and people who are interested in ed tech and whoever else happens to get on our listserv or find our website. Um, and you know, we always say at the beginning, there's a great line from an old book about Lego Mindstorms, which is, uh, um, the way you build a robot that works is that you build a robot that's broken and you fix it. Um, and that's roughly the way that we design the things that we do. So we have people come in and we play like, games that are not fun and do not help people learn. Um, and it turns out that like, playing games that are not fun is pretty fun if you do it sort of in the right circumstances. Um, and through their feedback and their dialogue with us, um, we're interested in doing that. Um, we have a teacher that we've been working really closely with. We've been doing a bunch of stuff with computer science teachers um, for a variety of reasons I could explain. Like basically all computer science teachers in Connecticut are trained in one form or another by Jim from Hartford. Um, so we've gotten to know Jim in Hartford really well. Um, and he's really excited this year about having his students develop some of the scenarios for some of the sort of interactive case studies things that we're doing. Um, so he's going to have his kids design scenarios that they think computer science teachers should be challenged with before they become computer science teachers. So we find all kinds of ways of getting kids and teachers involved in what we're doing. Um, after we think things are sort of sufficiently unbroken um, in our lab, we try to put them out in the field in various ways. Um, we have our first this year um, partnership with someone who's going to implement multiple of our practice spaces. So there's this professor at West Virginia University who's going to do four of our different things over the course of the semester and collect data about the experiences there. Um, we had a big partnership with Code.org um, where we have a variety of things that we've been done with them. They are sort of the largest trainer of computer science teachers across the country. Um, but we, also, we sort of work with anybody big or small that's willing to take some of our things and play with them um, and then share some data with us about the kinds of experiences that they had and how we can improve so them. the question is, yeah. is one of the goals to get the idea of teachers <coughs> in this space located inside of a school or inside of a district or is that where Yeah, we're yeah, I mean we, you know, so the so the there's sort of a series of mechanisms by which teachers learn throughout their career. So one of them are graduate schools of education where you go and like do a sequence of classes and do your observations. Um, those people are actually reasonably straightforward to connect with. Like they all go to the American Association of Colleges of Teacher Educators conference. Like we can find them there. Or the people who train school leadership folks go to the University Council of Education Administrators or something like that. Um, once people are actually into schools, schools have a variety of mechanisms for sometimes they do their own internal professional development, which like generally speaking across the country is pretty terrible. Um, they form small independence groups, often called professional learning communities. Um, they contract with third parties um, like code.org to be able to do that. Um, at the moment, we're pretty, we, we think a lot about how we want to make impact. In some fields, you can find out that a thing is true and it works and tell a professional body that that's the case and it will like generally speaking over time be implemented. Um, like if you learn a better way to intubate a patient, like you can go to the American Academy of Emergency Physicians and be like, hey team, like here's a better way to intubate a patient. And like they'll do a randomized control trial and be like, yep, that's it. And they'll be like, all right, we're telling everybody to do it that way. And it won't happen right away, but like you can kind of do that across hospitals across the country and across the world. 
There's no similar mechanism in teaching or teacher education. Teachers don't read the same things. They don't belong to the same organizations. Um, they don't participate, you know, the, the, I mean, the two groups that might play this role are the, the NEA and the AFT, the two major teacher unions, and for historical reasons, they don't. Um, they aren't sort of, they're, they're collective bargaining units and not um, sort of units of expertise in the way the American Association or the Bar Association or other things are. Um, so we spend a bunch of time, everyone who tries to make a difference in education spends a bunch of time sort of thinking about that. Computer science is kind of a fun place to play right now because there, there actually is a fair amount of centralization of, uh, there just aren't that many computer science teachers in the country and there aren't that many organizations that are training them. So like literally if you hang out with Jim from Hartford, like you get all of Connecticut and then you're, you know, whatever that is, uh, one, one fiftieth of the way there. Um, but uh, you know, other things are more, more complicated. That's a good question. Um, these are just pictures of what um, us hanging out with teachers look like. Um, and these are the events that we host. I should have updated it to say September 12th there, but that's uh, basically the same thing. Um, so we play games, we listen to people, we play around with stuff. Um, each time we try to do new things, we collect different forms of evidence that guide our developmental trajectories. Um, in the earliest phases of our work, um, we are uh, not at all rigorous about how we collect evidence. We take a lot of subjective impressions. We go with our guts. We have people tell us whether they like it or not. Um, and we sort of follow that. Um, by being not rigorous early on, we can do really fast iterative design loops. Um, the closer we get to field implementations and sort of larger scale field implementations, we hold ourselves sort of more and more accountable to collecting more and more rigorous and objective forms of evidence that we can evaluate to see whether or not things are working. Um, proximal measure, throughout education, proximal measures are always better, are always easier to collect than distal measures. I mean, in some ways, what you would like to know is that you did something with a kindergarten teacher, and that kindergarten teacher in 2017 teaches a student, and then you know when that kid is a 40-year-old in you know 2035, they're living a healthy, productive life. Um, you can't do a lot of like design loops over that period of time, um, and so the sort of smaller things that we use are you know teachers' subjective impressions of what they're learning. We're starting to do some more stuff with sort of classroom observations, what we can see people changing their behavior. Um, you know. When when we do more rigorous things, we'll collect things like student test scores and other kinds of stuff like that. But one of the signature challenges of working in education is that um, the, the distances between what you're trying to affect are really long. Like if you're doing studies of voting behavior, it's like on November, whatever, did they get out there or not? And you kind of know or not, and then you're sort of done for the next two years or four years. Um, our, the, the things that we look at try to take a long time, and so we make choices and compromises in, in what we collect and examine. Most, um Academic education articles are pseudoscience at best. There's never any controls. We did something and something happened, but we don't know if that's better or worse. Um, the next question is, do you ever systematically study bad teaching? I, so, I mean, certainly discussions of bad teaching come about a lot in what we're doing. Like, as we're construct mapping, <coughs> we sort of ask ourselves now questions. We, we learn much more from watching a really bad teacher fail than from watching virtuoso that makes it look magical. Yeah, yeah, in all, in all kinds of stages in between. I mean, I think a lot of people would describe the kinds of design-based research we do as sort of pseudoscience in the sense that in the sort of earliest phases of what we're doing, like we typically don't have a lot of controls. We take at face value a lot of like self-reported data um, and things like that. Um, 
and uh, we we tend to we tend to make multiple changes simultaneously. We say like we're trying to create a complex learning ecology for people, and to make it work, we're going to move th their entrance, some things they do in the middle, how they do at the end, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, there are a lot of cognitive scientists who would look at our work and would say, if you want to have any idea how mechanism works at all, you can only change one thing at a time. Um, and if you're not doing randomized control trials where you're evaluating, you know, a control group versus a treatment group, um, then you have no idea what you're looking at anyway. Um, and so those are the kinds of critiques that might be laid on what we're doing. Our sort of compromise among that is to say, like, um, well, actually, there, you know, there's, there's different kinds of really effective methods that are used at different parts of developing ideas in quality education. Um, and we think the virtues of being able to iterate quickly, um, uh, you know, sort of outweigh some of the more sort of careful, rigorous things that you might do at later stages. But we also, we haven't really gotten there with many of our projects, but we're committed downstream to employing, you know, the most sort of rigorous evaluative techniques that we can to make sure that, like, you know, I mean, the worst case scenario is that, is that teacher, educa teacher educators and teachers are like playing our games and having a good time and telling us that they're really fun and they're either not helping or negatively affecting or wasting people's time. Um, so somehow in our trajectory of work, we have to sort of bridge that. Uh, I'm curious about your organization, uh, the way other organizations might be. Uh, are there uh, commercial organizations that do the, the, the type of work you're doing, or is it best that it yeah, no, no. So, so there's um, like Mersion is one that I showed you, which is a which is a university spinoff. So the people who are building this thing, um, yeah. and uh, part of how they want to monetize it is not only to use it in classrooms, but yeah. to use it in other kinds of things. Um, other, they've also had partnerships with Educational Testing Service. They want to develop a series of um, assessments that in order to become licensed as a teacher, you would have to perform in certain ways within these standardized scenarios. Um, so and if somebody is very successful, uh, say, in a lab and wants to go commercial with it, how do they get the type of support that, uh, how does an organization like that go and get support? So, I mean, they're grant funded to begin with, but what they will eventually have to do um, is do marketing and sales and education, which is like notoriously one of the most difficult markets. Like particularly if you want to sell to schools, there are 50 states and there are 15,000 school districts and there are about 130,000 schools in the country. Each one of them has their own procurement rules, their own practices, people with different titles, um, different kinds of things to engage in. It's one of, I mean, one of the things that you see in the sort of education, like ed tech startup economy, is the desire to sell things directly to students, directly to teachers, directly to parents. Um, and the reason is, if you want to, you know, um, ed, ed, like ed tech startups, you're like two software developers and like, you know, someone who knows something about all kinds of things. Um, you probably don't have the funding to start with to build a marketing team that can go to 130,000 schools and 15,000 school districts and learn each of them and compete against Pearson and Macmillan and those kinds of things against them. Um, so textbook uh, companies have uh, still uh, a big... Uh Portion of this, this Textbook companies and, and, and trade presses as well. So there are organizations like Solution Tree. Like if you thought you you had some really good idea, um, you know, you think a great thing for teachers to do is to organize into professional learning communities and you write a book about that. Your name is Rick DeFore. Um, you publish the book through Solution Tree and then Solution Tree will not only sell your book, but will sort of sell your services as a keynote speaker, as a consultant. They'll hire sub-consultants who will like be <clears throat> trained in your methods to go out to other places. That's sort of another mechanism for disseminating. There's very little of that. There's a lot of that sort of in professional development to schools. There's very little of that in teacher education, in part because of norms of academic freedom that sort of create these barriers against commercialism and, and things like that. 
But we think about all that kind of stuff because you know we like we want to change the world. We want to make we don't we don't want to make like rinky dinky things that six people think are neat. We want to get them make really good stuff that gets widely adopted. Um, you know, I have a background that when I when I started teaching, um, I was not by any means the first, but it was relatively early to be in a one to one laptop classroom. So a colleague and I started this consultancy called EdTech Teacher, um, which works in schools and districts across the country to do professional development and online learning and things like that. Um, and I, it, it's still a sort of mechanism for me. Like, is there cool stuff that that we learn about in the lab or in my research? Like, there's a way for me to sort of have this uh, for profit entity that can continue that you know. Like it's not my job, and in, in some ways, it's it doesn't. You know, I don't know. We always joke around, like at MIT, that when when people finish App Inventor, they don't say to themselves, like, now how do we get App Inventor adopted by a gazillion schools? They say to themselves, like, what's App Inventor two going to look like? Like that's just sort of the nature of MIT. There's going to probably have to be other kinds of organizations that address those those dissemination challenges, and some of them may be for profit. You know, which is one good way of doing things. Clergy, Cl clergy would be a good example of, of one, and, and even clergy, like within them, like actually different religious traditions would have different levels of centralization or decentralization. Um, and do you have any? I guess do you have any ideas? Would you see under your ambit as trying to propose ways to build some of those norms once you have good ideas so they can actually get out and act in the world? Yeah, I would. You know, I would, I would definitely say that that is. You know. Yeah, how do, you, how do you make impact and disseminate your ideas? So like one of the things that we're, we, have, we have funding from and we're partnering with the Emerson Collective, which is Lorene Powell Jobs' philanthropic organization. Um, and they have this network of schools called the XQ Schools, you know, 20 of which they've made huge grants to, um, but they're trying to sort of include other schools in that orbit now. Um, and you know, it may be that actually the right dissemination networks you know, we don't have to make a difference in 130,000 schools or in the 12,000 schools that are in Massachusetts. Like maybe the right, you know, group to work with is actually, you know, 75 schools that somehow are aligned around some kind of mission or things like that. Um, you know, there are different kinds of school management or school coordination organizations. Um, some of them are more loose and decentralized, like the Coalition of Essential Schools, and then some of them have a specific model, like the KIPP schools or the Expeditionary Learning Schools or the New Tech Network schools. Um, so it may, you know, it may be that, you know, that there. I don't know, anybody who enters the field of education makes a trade-off between how deeply you want to touch the lives of children and how many children's lives you want to touch. Um, and if you're a teacher, like, you know, every day I wake up and I'm keenly aware of the fact that, like, there's no child's life who's going to be improved because of what I do today directly. Like, all the work I do is intermediated through, ch through teachers, and teachers are, in fact, the most important actors in these systems, even if they may be the least well-paid and the least, you know, recognized by society and things like that. And so we have to sort of say to ourselves, like, you know, what's the right scale of sort of organizational collective of teachers to work with that we can make the most interesting kind of difference? Um, you know, it's part of why, like, computer science is kind of a fun place to play right now, because you can actually, like, get pretty close to all of them, because there aren't that many. Um, and they're sort of, you know, widely decentralized in, in interesting kinds of ways. But, but, but yeah, the, I mean, I don't think we have a, 
and probably the way we answer that question honestly too is like pretty opportunistic. Um, so like, you know, who, who will pay us to work with these people? You know, like, will the whole state pay? You know, right now we're talking with a country um, that's you know, about the size of New Jersey. Like, it'd be pretty cool to be working with that country. Um, but uh, you know, if they don't pay us and somebody else does, then, then we'll do that too. Not that pay is the only thing, there's other mechanisms that we're motivated by. We don't get paid that much anyway, so. Um, cool. We have a few more minutes. Here's, a, here's just a few more games that we have. Oh, I was gonna say something about evidence. Yeah, we talk about evidence that we use sort of more subjective forms of evidence and we try to get more um, kind of objective rigorous ones over time. Um, uh, one of the game, one of the sort of, I shouldn't call them games, I should call them practice spaces. That's like the right terminology because they're not necessarily games or game-like. Um, one called teacher moments, um, and the idea of this is sort of interactive video case studies. And I, if I can get it to work, um, I'll, uh, I'll play one of them quickly so you can see it. Um, so the idea is that you would like, One risk of working in things in perpetual beta is that it might not work, but we'll try. Um, so anyway, uh, we'll give you, these links are in the slides, I don't know how the slides are disseminated, but 3flows.herokuapp.org has like a whole range of scenarios that we've developed for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, one of the things that we've been trying to do is to take like to as closely as possible translate the work of those clinical simulations. So there's a guy named Ben Dodger at Syracuse who's done awesome work with clinical simulations. Um, and we've been working directly with him and saying, you know, one of the interesting things about those clinical simulations is if you do them right, you actually standardize the actor quite a bit. Um, so the actor is, is trained um, to have a series of beliefs to make a series of statements, and some of those statements are what Dodger describes as verbal triggers, which is they're sort of like controversial statements that are meant to provoke a reaction. And if you're an actor in those scenarios, your job is to like move the conversation so it hits a series of these verbal triggers. You know, our response to that is like, well, let's just record people saying those verbal triggers um, and have people respond directly to those. So let, you know, if you're trying to standardize this person anyway, why don't we standardize this person in the video media? Um, and you know, our hunch is that it probably won't be as good, um, but it might be 20% as good or it might be 80% as good. It's gonna be substantially, substantially cheaper because once we create one of these things and make it open source and openly licensed, the marginal cost of sharing it is going to be zero. Um, and so you know, something that costs nothing but is 80% or 60% as good might be, a, might be a pretty good trade off. So here's one of our efforts at that. There's this parent, um, her name is uh, Jennifer Turner. Um, and so if all this works, you know, you can read about how we use your data and you can sort of log into your system. Eventually these things will work well on a phone. So you read a story about how you're a teacher recently hired in Pleasantville and you get some sort of background and context and Amber Turner is a student in your class and she's known throughout the community as the model because she's appeared in several well-known clothing store and shoe commercials and photo shoots. And um, she's actually a little bit of a pain to you. She's kind of frustrated. She's almost failing. Um, so you think a little bit about that scenario and you write some notes about sort of what you think is going to be important in the conversation and you write some notes about your observations. All of this is like basically translated directly from Ben Dodger's work. Um, and Ben Dodger wants you to have, this is our interpretation of it, sort of four kinds of experiences. So first he wants you to experience the conversation with Mrs. Turner as authentic. 
Like it should feel real to you that you're having a conversation with another person, sufficiently real that it generates um, cognitive disequilibrium. Like these scenarios should be challenging and you should feel uncomfortable and ill at ease and not know what to do. And we especially want you to experience that cognitive disequilibrium in simulation so that you're sort of prepared for it the first time you actually have to sit down with a teacher, who, uh, with a parent who's having a tough time um, with you or you're having a tough time with them. Then in your actual performance, we want you to demonstrate the ability to respond calmly and reasonably, like you're experiencing disequilibrium, but you can still sort of perform in a professional way. Um, and in particular, you can articulate your pedagogical beliefs about a particular circumstance. So one scenario I won't show you um, is a parent who's really concerned because her kid has autism in, in your class. Um, and she wants to hear what, you know, sometimes he hugs kid, he, sometimes he hugs other kids, it's kind of inappropriate. He wants to hear what you're gonna do. He wants to hear what your thoughts are about um, sort of inclusion versus uh, uh, sort of pulling students aside. In, you know, what, are, what are your beliefs about teaching with teaching students with disabilities, and can you articulate them? Um, so you would be like sitting at home. Um, maybe this is the assignment that we've given. You know, you're going to go to class tomorrow um, and have a discussion about this. And your homework is to sort of like sit down. Um, you maybe you can do it in your room if you have a single. If you're a college student, maybe you have to like go to some quiet space where you can do this. Um, but you're going to talk with Jennifer. Oh, I, this sounds not going to be great because I didn't plug it in. Hi. But. I'm Mrs. Turner, Amber's mom. I'm glad we finally have a chance to sit down and talk about your class. So you do that, and then actually as soon as the video stops, it's gonna start recording you, and this is the point in which you would say, okay, well thanks, I'm really excited to hear about what concerns you have. Thanks for coming in. I'm not sure you are aware of everything Amber does. She's a model, and she's not really going to go to college, so I'm not sure why she has to spend all of her time on your class. Oh, well, I'm really excited about her career. Um, you know, I think this kind of stuff that we're doing in class is really important. Da, da, da. I was a teacher once, actually. I know you're new here, right? So I don't understand why you have all these kinds of assignments in your class. They just seem unnecessary, especially because this is a regular class, right? It's not a AP level class or honors level class. I'm not sure I understand why you have you know, such a high bar for what you expect these kids to do. Good. Um, and so over the course of some number of these videos, let me see if I can get it to pause, because she's just going to keep kind of harping on this. Well, I think you're a <laughs> <laughs> um, So. All of that data, that, you know, all the recordings are then recorded and we're experimenting with different kinds of things of doing to them, whether we immediately pass them back to students or we pass them back into peer groups. Um, we have students at the end of this, they'll write some reflection questions about how those conversations go and then they'll come back together. Um, and you know, the, the sort of the approach that we've developed here maps pretty closely onto what Ben is doing in Syracuse in live circumstances and so we're excited to start comparing um, how our experiences are different. You know, in our early analyses we're like, kids find these things to be like pretty and pretty disequilibrium producing that they actually, you know, they describe their conversations with Mrs. Turner um, as being provoked, as feeling offended. Um, you know, the funny thing is Rupal, who's our actor here, is like the sweetest woman you've ever met. And it's totally like, it was kind of remarkable that she managed to create this character um, out of her own personality. But, uh, um, and, uh, um, you know, students, you know, we go through all the recordings and students, in fact, do like have conversations with Jennifer that have these sort of reasonable back and forth turns behind them. Um, and that they often find themselves challenged to be like, oh, 
why do I think this class should be rigorous? Like, what is my justification for that? How would I explain that to myself or to my students? Um, what do I think the role of, you know, how do I think I should integrate a student with autism? Like, it turns out I actually don't know that much about autism. Um, maybe I should have. I'm going to have a student with autism in my class. So the ideal set of circumstances is that students, you know, is that as learners who are participating in this get a chance to engage with these challenging circumstances. You know, it's very unlikely that a teacher doing classroom observation, a pre-service teacher doing classroom observations would actually engage with a parent. Um, they're always going to, you know, the first time you engage with a parent, like an angry parent, like there's no practice. <laughs> like you're a professional teacher in your first year of teaching and you've done something probably wrong that has made a parent angry. Um, can we help you deal with that in advance? There's a whole nother body of work that we're doing with this around unconscious bias. Um, so a series of scenarios which are meant to describe sort of marginalizing behavior among students or towards students and to see, you know, what teachers notice with that. We want to start experimenting with some things where we randomize the characteristics of, of people that teachers see. So like you're seeing Rupal here as an Indian American woman. How would you behave differently if she was an African American woman? How would you, she behave differently if she was a white woman? Um, if she was a white dad, something like that. You know, what would, what would be your different reactions? Um, and, and we actually find that like even with these really sparse pieces of information that we give people, people can notice very, very different things in scenarios. So we've, we've been doing this. Uh, scenario around pair programming. So there's two kids who are doing this classic activity where you give them a pile of Legos, you tell them to build something, and you tell them to write instructions for how they built it, and then you knock the thing down and you pass the instructions and the pile of Legos to another pair and see if the other pair can reconstruct what you've built from the instructions. So it's an it's a, it's a activity that's about like precision in language and you know, sometimes it gets into you know, recursion or other kinds of things that are, that are evoked there. Um, so we, we created a scenario which for us um, has like pretty obvious marginalization between one student and another. There's one student who sort of takes over doing all the work and then eventually says, like, why do I have to do this? I already know how to do this. Can't this other kid do it himself? Um, and you know, even with relatively small groups of teachers, they see really different things in those scenarios. So some teachers will look at that and be like, hey, like, there's some really problematic behavior going on. I need to intervene. Um, some of them would say, um, man, you know, we really need to help this kid get motivated. Like, why is this kid disengaged? You know, so they make attributions that the kids, um, the, the student who's not doing as much work, their lack of motivation is because of some interpersonal problem rather than because of the context of the scenario. And then actually there are some teachers, particularly some from private schools who looked at the scenarios and said, man, we really got to help that kid who's like not being sufficiently challenged. Like, how do, we, how do we make sure that person can sort of like, you know, basically the student who is doing the marginalizing behavior is like, how do we help that kid go even faster? Um, and uh, so, so even with like really pretty sparse amounts of information with the scenario, we see that people bring different challenges to it. Um, one of the things that we've found pretty helpful about doing this around sort of culturally competent teaching um, is that if you have generalized discussions about what good behavior is, like you can have conversations that like achieve sort of satisfying platitudes pretty quickly. Um, when you talk about the specific decisions that you have to make, when there's a you know Latina girl who wants to drop out of a computer science class, and you have to say like, how hard am I going to try to recruit this girl? Like you know, because there are structural situations that are preventing her from being successful, or like maybe she just like legit doesn't like computer science and just as an individual, regardless of her background, should be able to drop. Um, you know, how do we sort of resolve or think about those kinds of challenges? Putting them in the context of like actual decisions that people need to make um, changes the context. So some of those, so that, um, oh, let me go back to, oh, I didn't let you go. Um, Maybe, you know, maybe, the, maybe the last thing that I'll say about it um, is that you know, the kinds of things that we examine um, 
Uh, one of the things that we're finding, which is kind of interesting, is that they have a they have a range of authenticity. The closer that we get to getting like actual practice of teaching, um, sometimes it just feels like sort of tasks or work to people. Um, and then there's this space where we're doing things sort of like committee of N, where like you would never, like in your job as a teacher, you'll basically never do the thing that committee of N is, but it's pretty fun and playful and gets you thinking in different kinds of ways. It sort of feels more game-like to us. And there's this sort of space of simulation that's in between where you're doing things that like feel kind of playful and relevant and sort of like what you would do at teaching, but not exactly the same way. Um, but that's one of the sort of core dilemmas and design constraints that we're playing around with. Like how much do we want, you know, what are the affordances of learning experience experiences which are which are playful which are different but don't directly translate into teaching and learning work they end up evincing heuristics like you know think about the values that are behind things um, versus practices that look more like simulations that are a little bit less playful and game like but have you practicing particular kinds of circumstances um, cool um, so maybe that is the thought that I'll leave you with as we hit our um, 6.30 hour. But if people are more interested in this, I'm totally happy to hang out um, and answer more questions. The last thing I'll put on the board, if you want to come and hang out with us on the 12th, um, you can go to tsl.mit.edu slash playtest. Um, and come hang out with a bunch of teachers with us. And then if you want to see sort of all the games and all the things that we're working on, if you go to tsl.mit.edu slash practice, that's kind of where the everything is archived. Um, but thanks for playing with me. Thanks for uh, asking some good questions. And thanks for hanging out uh, for the first colloquium of the semester. <laughs>